I will be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 32 to 50. Please listen as I read the word of God. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Brother Joel, please come to preach the word to us. Do you know what it was? The dying on the cross, the being forsaken by his father. Do you know what it was? It was damnation. Damnation taken lovingly. Those are the words of the famous Scotsman, John, nicknamed Rabbi Duncan because he knew Hebrew so well. Damnation taken lovingly. This evening, I want to get right to the nadir, not the apex, but the nadir of Jesus' suffering. On Golgotha. And there's enough here in this one word to consume our attention tonight. You know the details of how he got to the cross, how he was lifted up, how there were six hours and then three hours of darkness. But tonight, we want to get right to the nadir of it. My God, my God, verse 46, why hast thou Forsaken me. So our message tonight is, He, not we, forsaken. With an exclamation point. 
We'll look at three thoughts. First, the profundity of his sufferings. Second, the purpose that lay behind his sufferings. And third, the love that pervades his sufferings. He, not we, forsaken. It's profundity. It's purpose. It's love. It's 12 o'clock noon. Jesus has been on the cross for three pain-filled hours. Three times He's spoken. All three times have been other person-centered. He's focused on the forgiveness of His torturers. He's promised salvation to a thief. He's made arrangements for His mother's care. Many in the tumultuous crowd have hardly heard a word that He's spoken. It was noisome. It was boisterous. It was inflammatory. And many of those five days earlier had waved palm branches before Him and cried out, Hosanna! And now they're making abominable accusations against Christ. And then suddenly it happened. At noon, suddenly Golgotha went strangely dark. It became midnight at midday. The noise disappeared in a moment. The clamor at the place of execution ceased. It became dark all over the land, the Bible says. No natural phenomenon this. More than a thunderstorm. More than an eclipse. A supernatural act of God. Midnight at midday. Darkness is a symbol in the Bible for the judgment of God. God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. The Scripture associates sin with darkness. Holiness with light. And so the physical darkness that covers Calvary signals a deeper and more fearsome darkness that Christ Himself has described as outer darkness. The darkness of hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the sun cannot shine on our Lord as He descends figuratively into the agonies and depths of hell. Heavy darkness descends on Golgotha. The great high priest pulls back the inner curtain and walks into the Holy of Holies on the cross. The Son of God is left alone in the eerie silence, forsaken of God, forsaken of man, forsaken of heaven, of earth, and of hell. He trods the winepress alone. At Christ's birth, the bright light of God's glory and a great multitude of angels filled the heavens. God welcomed His Son triumphantly into the world. But when He dies, the heavens go black because God is forsaking His own Son. It is night within Jesus for the God of light is letting go of His Son. God does not look upon His suffering servant. He turns His face away as we just sang. Forsaken of God, forsaken of people, Jesus confronts a dreadfully dark end. 
in the midst of natural darkness, spiritual darkness descends mysteriously, sovereignly, overwhelmingly upon his very being. We read of no word during these three hours by Christ or anyone in the crowd around the cross. Hour four, hour five, hour six tick away in an awesome, eerie, unforgettable scene of silence. Hear the silence with me tonight. Feel the darkness. And then dare to try to tell me that Jesus does not understand your darkness. He does understand. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's a friend that can sympathize with you in the dark night of your soul. In the darkest moments you've ever faced. He's been there. He's been deeper. He's been darker. Heaven is silent, you say. Well, He has faced it. He has faced it. He understands. He's been there. He knows what it's like. He can get you through whatever you're going through. Your weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. He who endured midnight at midday is able to carry you through. Now, Christ endured most of His suffering in silence, as you know. He did not respond to the spitting and the scourging at Golgotha. He was silent as He carried His cross. Silent as He was lifted up upon it. Silent as the nails tore at His flesh. Silent as the pole was let down into the hole and the screeching pain racked through His body. But as He experiences the full brunt of His Father's wrath, the cry is wrenched out of Him with a loud voice, My God! My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? What does it mean? And what doesn't it mean? Well, let me say four or five things what it doesn't mean, and then four things that it does mean. First, this cry does not mean that Jesus in any way diminished His deity. Jesus did not cease being God before or during or after this cry. He was and He is always God and man. Man from the moment of conception. Supernatural conception in the womb of Mary. God from all eternity past to eternity future. And second, this cry does not divide His human nature from His divine person. His person is not split so that the union between His natures is broken. These two, God and man, never cease to be united in Jesus. Christ has not experienced desertion here in His divine nature, but in His human nature. And yet the two natures mysteriously are inseparable. The Father temporarily deserts Christ, but Christ does not desert His Father. And third, this word does not destroy the Trinity. It does not reveal a crack in the Trinity so that the Father and Son fall apart. God the Father cannot forsake His Son as God. Father and Son are still one in their being and one in their attributes. The three have not become the two. 
The Father, the Son, the Spirit remain three persons in one Godhead. But the awesome fellowship of delight has been temporarily severed between the Father and His Son. Thomas Goodwin says the Godhead was not separated, though the operation of comfort from the Godhead was sequestered. So the Trinity has not become the duality. And fourth, Jesus Christ does not detach Him from the Holy Spirit. He does not cease to be filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. He lacks the comforts of the Spirit, but not the holiness of the Spirit. And fifth, this cry does not cause Him to disavow His mission. Both the Father and the Son have known from all eternity that Jesus will become the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. Known unto God, Acts 15.18, are all His works from the beginning of the world. Jesus has been walking all His life with this destiny in mind. Knowing what should come upon Him. Knowing the hour of laying down His life had finally come. It's unthinkable that the Son of God might question what is happening on the cross or be perplexed about why His loving Father's presence departs. Jesus knew very well. He refused wine mixed with myrrh at the very start of His crucifixion so that He would be alert to the end. He wasn't under any anesthesia. All His feelings serve this redemptive end. So what does it mean? No one can put this into words. It's too deep. It's too profound. I'm only going to stammer tonight four thoughts. Stammer a little of the surface of what he endured. The first thing it surely means is that he's expressing the agony of unanswered supplication. The agony of unanswered supplication. It's a response to what the Father is doing when the Father turns away the cry of the Lord Jesus, recorded in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verses 1 and 2, Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. This prophecy of Christ is now being fulfilled. We don't know exactly what Jesus was praying for. Is He asking once more for the cup of suffering to pass? Is He begging once more for a smile from His Father? Whatever it is, He receives no answer. The cry goes out. And the echo of silence comes back. The heavens are His brass before Him. Unanswered. Unanswered. Jesus, unanswered, now feels forgotten. And so you too, dear believer, when your cries seem so far from God, so unanswered, remember in your most forgotten moments, you're not truly forgotten by God because He forgot His Son so He wouldn't forget you. A mother 
can sooner forget her sick, sucking child, Isaiah 49, than your Father in heaven for the forgotten Savior's sake would ever forget you. Oh, the agony in Jesus' heart that His own Father did not answer His supplication. That Father of whom He said, He answers me always. It was unbearable. No answer from Christ, said the great divine Samuel Rutherford, is hell on earth for the believer. If that's true for us, how much more true for the son of the bosom of his delight. No answer. Hell for Christ on the cross. Second, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Means that Jesus is expressing the agony of unbearable stress. Stress and distress so overwhelm him that Psalm 22 calls it a roaring. A roaring. Perhaps you've seen the famous painting titled The Scream that depicts a person with a huge mouth uttering an awful scream. It represents humanity under so much stress that it utters a a primal scream. But even that scream does not reach the depths of the roaring cry of the Lord Jesus. The cry that pierces darkness. The cry that's like a perpetual shriek of those cast away forever. It's the cry from the bottomless pit. It's the roar of desperate agony without rebellion. John Flavel writes, It is as if Christ had said, Oh my God, no words can express my anguish. I will not speak but roar and howl out my complaint. I will pour it out in volleys of groans. I roar as a lion. This cry is heart-piercing, heaven-piercing, hell-piercing. It's a cry of agony. Two things come together in this cry. The son knows the full measure of his father's wrath. The full measure of his father's wrath. The anger of God deluges down upon the son with no restraint. All of divine justice comes flooding into his soul. Crashing in upon him. Wave after wave after wave. Never, never, as the Son of God tasted the wrath of God, as He now does. And yet at the same time, the Son is the supreme object of His Father's pleasure. The Father every, anywhere, anywhere, love His Son so much as on the cross. He laid down His life for His enemies. Never has the Father more approved and admired His Son than now. The Son temporarily feels no comfort of it. Oh, the agony of unbearable stress. The third, Jesus is expressing in this agonizing cry the agony of unmitigated sin. 
all the sin of all His elect of all ages and the hell that they all deserve collectively for eternity are laid upon Him on the cross. Without the undergirding support of His deity, He couldn't have begun to sustain this burden. You know, I once saw a picture in a U.S. News and World Report of a man standing in front of a multi-storied Sears Tower building in Chicago. He had two large boulders in his hand, in his hands. The caption beneath the picture said that there are some stars that are so dense in weight in the galaxy that those two boulders combined were as heavy, if they were taken from the star, as the entire Sears tower behind the man. And when I saw that picture, it reminded me of what it must have been for Christ to have all the sin and all the weight and all the hell of all His people consume upon Him in a dense, compacted moment. Six hours, and especially these three hours. It was indescribable. So dense. So personal. So weighty. Jesus' cry includes such a profound sense of sin that temporarily His sense of sonship seems to fade into the background. Not that He doubted His divine sonship. Not that He ever lost it altogether. That's impossible. But Jesus, though conscious of His divine identity, feels His his substitutionary obedience so acutely See, so dominated by a sense of sin that he's overwhelmed. Eli, Eli, Eloi, Eloi. Hebrew and Aramaic. My God, my God. He's aware of God, you see. The goodness of God. The justice and holiness of God. But in that awful moment in his self-image, he feels sinship, sinnership more than sonship. It's just the unmitigated sin that overwhelms. Calvin said of Christ in these moments, still in his heart, faith remained firm by which he beheld the presence of God of whose absence he now complains. You see, in these words, Eli, Eli, Jesus exemplifies how we must abandon our feelings when our feelings say, God has abandoned me. He doesn't say Father in these moments as He did in the first word on the cross and as He did in the last word of the cross. But He does say, My God. Contrary to all His feelings. When everything about Him and everything He was experiencing said, No God. He said, My God. His feelings are saying, No strength. No strong one. But He cries out, My strong one. My God. He appeals to the One who has always supported Him in the past. His feelings are saying, you have been left alone. His face says, no matter what my feelings tell me, He's my God. There's faith in the midst of darkness. And what a lesson here. What a lesson here. Too often as Christians and as pastors, we are governed by our feelings rather than our faith. And we need to model for others how to live by Christ by faith, 
in the midst of our darkest hours and our deepest trials. Why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus really knows the answer. But he's asking in the spirit of submissive faith. Sometimes people say, we can't ask God why questions. Well, if we can't ask God why questions, if that's sinful, then Jesus sinned here. The problem isn't asking the why question. The problem is the spirit of the why question. If it's a why question with a fist, why are you doing this to me, Lord? Of course it's sin. But if it's a why question with our palms open, why, O oh God, search me and know my heart. And see if there be any wicked way in me and root it out and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, it honors God. Or if it's a why question that really is just asking for reassurance and comfort and the presence of God, it honors God. This is the why question of Jesus. He's saying, Father, I know, I know, I know my mission. But remind me, remind me once more my agony, why all this is necessary, necessary to be forsaken of Thee. I'm asking, Lord, show me again, remind me again what I already know. How often we experience that as pastors and as pastors' wives. In the midst of trouble and agony. God doesn't answer us. When the heavens are as brass. When we cry out with a bride, Saw ye him whom my soul loveth? And we search the streets. And we can't find him in his word. We can't find him in his means. Because everything seems dark. We know what we need to know. But we want to hear it again. Remind me again, Lord, that thou art faithful to me in the midnight hours of the dark night of the soul. My God, why? And finally, Jesus is expressing here the agony of unassisted solitariness. Unassisted solitariness. You know, the Father had always lavished generously and continuously His love upon Him. Really, the Father's love to the Son is what makes the world go round. Seventeen times the Apostle John says in his, epistle, in his Gospel that it's out of the love of the Son that all things are designed and destined for God's people to come into glory one day. He doesn't love you just because He loves you, dear believer, from all eternity. But He loves you from all eternity because He determined to display His love for His Son in saving you. And the Son is used to that. The Son is used to basking in the Father's love. Being overwhelmed with the Father's love. Being motivated by the Father's love. And now He experiences this pain of absolute solitariness. Have you ever been really lonely? I mean, really lonely? So lonely that you wept? Christ experienced an incredible loneliness. Christ was a people person. He was a father person. He loved his father. He loved people. He embraced babies in their arms. He touched lepers. He, he was just was a people person everywhere. He loved to be around people. 
He loved to be alone with his father. But now he's deserted by everyone. It's absolute solitariness. No dove descends from heaven to symbolize peace. No angel is sent to strengthen him. No well done, thou good and faithful servant resounds in his ears. He's in a far country, a strange country. He's hanging in the naked flame of his father's wrath. The women who supported him are silent. The disciples, cowardly and terrified, are far away. He's disowned by all. He walks the way of suffering, the Via Dolorosa, alone in pitch black darkness. Not one beam of sunlight is permitted to shine on him. God is present, yes, but only in displeasure, bearing down upon him in anger. Instead of love, there's wrath. Instead of affection, there's coldness. Instead of support, there's opposition. Instead of nearness, there's distance. For three long, agonizing hours, at all his cry, the intensity of his cry, the heart-wrenchedness of his cry, does not bring the Father back. My God, why? I read a story of a little boy lost in a mall. He saw his mother a long ways away. He was crying for her, but she didn't hear him. She kept walking in the opposite direction. And the little boy's legs couldn't keep up with his mother. His mother was going fast, and the little boy was trying to go fast. But the more he cried, the further away his mother went. Christ cried out, and it seemed like his father just was further away, distancing himself, deserted, forsaken. He's not pitying himself. Don't get me wrong. He does not cry out with the rich man, I am tormented in this flame. But he cries out for God. And every detail of this abandonment whispers and speaks and shouts with a megaphone to you and to me. This is what God thinks of your sin and my sin. This is the enormity. This is the heinousness, the dastardliness, the spiritual insanity of sin that it would cost the price of the Son of God. How can God forsake Christ as though He's can and not Christ? How can God be forsaken of God, said Martin Luther? Who can comprehend it? No son of Adam has ever gone through what Christ endured. We often feel forsaken. But we're not forsaken. We endure the shadow. Christ endures the substance. When we feel forsaken, our feelings do not correspond with reality. When Christ felt forsaken, it was reality. Not so long ago, I was in a city in Northern California. And uh, someone fell ill at the conference. And I went to the hospital with the conference organizer to see the brother. He pulled up to the emergency room door. And at the emergency room, there was a picture of what I thought was a, a mailbox uh, with a picture of a baby on, on the mailbox. And I said, well, why is there a picture of a baby on the mailbox? And well, 
the man told me rather embarrassedly, he said, actually, it's not a mailbox. It's a drop-off box for unwanted babies. So that mothers can pull up and take their baby rather than flush them down a toilet or rather than leave them in an abandoned field, they can uh, open the box and lay the baby in and let it roll into a basket and they can drive away. The thought just horrifies us. A mother abandoning a baby. God abandoning His Son. That is what Jesus felt at that moment. And for those feelings, that was reality. He felt forsaken. Because He was forsaken. He endured the essence. We endure the shadows. Why? What's the purpose? There can only be four purposes. First purpose, that's a possibility, is capriciousness. Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Father Please the Lord, rather, to bruise His Son in His love for this evil world. God the Father offered up His own Son. But capriciousness could not be the answer here. That's unthinkable. God can never bruise and desert His Son out of mere arbitrary sovereignty. God knows no mood changes. He's not capricious. His love is steady. It's agape love. Second possibility is that the father bruised his son out of malice. That he crushed and bruised and extinguished the life of his own son because of the evil that was part of his nature. Well, that's unthinkable. His son is perfect. It would be criminal on the part of God. God is not unjust. Third possibility is didactic. That the father wanted to teach the son profound lessons about suffering. So he laid harsh judgment, especially the judgment of desertion upon him. And some say in church history that this is what it was for, an exemplary suffering, so that we might learn in our sufferings from the suffering of Jesus, so that we can have a sense of God's presence and God's absence. I learned to grow through the combination of that experience. Well, it's true, of course, that sometimes God withdraws His presence as a disciplinary measure because we've offended Him. Sometimes He withdraws Himself from us as a precautionary measure. He sees us heading into dangerous territory. And He withdraws to make us aware of the direction we're heading. Or sometimes He withdraws as a test. Not because we've done wrong, but just to ask, Will you stay with me if I take away the sense of my presence with you? Yes, we need didactic lessons through the withdrawing presence of God. But Jesus doesn't need them. Jesus is already perfect. The Father has no need to bruise His Son as a test or as a discipline or as a precaution. There's only one answer left. And you know the answer. My God, my God, why? The answer is penal. Penal substitution. That's the source of the sufferings of Jesus. 
It's the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God demands that sin be punished. The father bruised his son out of judicial wrath. A just infliction of punishment for the sin that Christ carries for His people. You see, the answer is 2 Corinthians 5.21. The logic of judicial substitution. For, for He has made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we may be made the righteousness of God in Him. The logic of Calvary is that Christ was made sin for us. He died for us. He bore our sin for us. He was accursed for us. He gave His life a ransom for many. You see, when all the anomalies and mysteries of God's salvation are piled on top of one another, this little word for demolishes them all. Because in this word for, darkness is illuminated. This small word unites Jesus Christ and sinners There's only one thing that can explain why God inflicted punishment on His own Son. And that is that His Son stood in intimate connection with sinners and their sin. And if that was not so, if that is not so today, if that will not be so on the day of judgment, then the dark hour of Calvary is indeed the darkest hour the world has ever known. And the Good Friday is a bad Friday. But thanks be to God, it is not so. We are joined with Christ to sin and to sinners by the word for. He does it for His people. And what that means is is absolutely wonderful. It means two things. It means, first of all, He's acting on behalf of His people for their benefit. When He's on the cross, He's acting as your representative, dear believer. He's acting in your interest, your representative, your advocate. The one who takes your place. The one who pleads for you, intercedes for you, suffers for you, dies for you. But also, that little word for means he doesn't only act on behalf of his people, but he suffers on behalf of his clients. He's the physician and he's the balm of Gilead. He's both. He's not only the priest interceding and pleading for his people, but he becomes a sacrifice in their place. He's our substitute. And that's why, that's why he's anathema. That's why he's cursed. Because he's your sin. God bruised his son and did not spare him. Because he was made a curse for you to redeem you from the curse. He's your condemnation. So there's no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus. He's the Son of God crucified. He's the Son of God anathema. He's the Son of God desolate. The Son of God forsaken. Because He's a Son of Man who must suffer many things. And that must is inseparably tied with your salvation. And with the very character of God who delights in mercy. God loves to forgive sin. But He'll never do it unjustly. He loves to multiply pardon and to make it abound. But He condones nothing evil. God Himself, the infinite God, alone can give satisfaction to the infinite God, we said two nights ago. Well, here it happens. Wonder of wonders. The God who forgives 
The God who bears, the God who exacts, is the God who demands atonement. But the God who provides the atonement becomes the atonement. My son, said Abraham, God shall Himself provide the Lamb for a burnt offering. God the Father has found the Lamb, the perfect Lamb, in His own flock, in His own bosom. This is the reality of the Christian faith. This is the glory of the Gospel. This is what made Napoleon say, I have conquered a world by force. But I am still grieved because Jesus Christ has conquered the world by love. This is the greatest reality of all. Jesus Christ becomes the sacrifice. The scapegoat. The ram caught in the bushes. The greater Isaac laid upon the altar. The knife comes down and does not get held back. And it pierces the very Son of God, Son of Man. Theologically, we say his suffering is vicarious. His penal suffering is vicarious. He suffered on your behalf, dear believer. He didn't simply come to share our forsakenness or to take the brunt of our forsakenness. He came to save us from our forsakenness. He endured it for us, not just with us. And that's why you are immune to condemnation. And to God's anathema. Because Christ bore the curse for you in that outer darkness. So you would never have to go into the outer darkness of the abyss. He sympathizes with you, yes. But what Golgotha does is it secures for you immunity rather than sympathy. You're delivered. You're freed in Christ upon faith. And therefore, because Christ died on the tree, there's no longer the slightest need for one grain of penal suffering to be visited on any of His people. God does not punish His people. He chastens them to make them conform to the image of His Son. Christ endured all the torments, all the relational distance from God that we deserve as sinners. The Savior was once abandoned for me, so that I shall never be abandoned from God. Christ has once suffered for sins, 1 Peter 3.18, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Golgotha achieves all that the Father designed it to accomplish. His glory and your salvation. The Lamb gave His life for the sheep. And therefore, dear brother, preach on. Preach on in weakness and in power. Preach on. Pastor on. God's Word will not return to Him void. It is guaranteed success. Go, as uh, Robert Hawker said, into every text you preach with a flashlight and look for the suffering Savior and bring Him out and placard Him before your people and tell of the wonders of the cross. He forsaken, that you would never be forsaken. We deserve the darkness, the dreadful darkness. As sinners, as hell-worthy sinners. But we come out of the darkness. Because Emmanuel, God with us, went into the darkness. 
under the darkness, through the darkness. And he came out of the darkness. And was resurrected from the dead. And ascended into heaven. And sits at the Father's right hand. And eagerly anticipates the day when he will take his people, whom he brought from self-made darkness, into his marvelous light and say to them, Come, enter thou into the joy of the Lord, into the land of light forever and ever. This cry is entirely vicarious and penal and substitutionary. This is the heart of the Gospel. Well, let me conclude this evening by just mentioning a few things then about the love that pervades, the love that pervades this suffering. I have just three things to say. First is this. Christ being forsaken by God reveals the stupendous love of our Savior. Samuel Rutherford once said, Christ incarnate is not but love covered with flesh. Well, how true that is in his cry of dereliction. This is pure, undiluted love. The cry of the incarnate God, whose soul is sinking ever deeper into the bottomless pit of divine wrath. And he does not answer the cries of those who cried out to Him, if Thou be the Christ, come down from the cross and save Thyself and us. He bears the brunt of it. He bears the curse. Because if He had come down, you and I would have to go to the cross. We cannot fathom the love of the One who saved us from perdition. The poet says it this way, you know it well, but none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere He found His sheep that was lost. And so as followers of Christ, we must expect suffering and persecution. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We must bear our share of suffering, as we heard last night, but then to follow Him. He meriting everything. We walking the pathway gratuitously. Philippians 2, 5, 8 says it so well. Let the mind of Christ Jesus dwell in you. What was the problem with the Philippians? The problem was they were lovers of self rather than lovers of one another. They were claiming their own rights rather than surrendering them. They wanted to be praised for their services in the church, which they gave to the Lord. They wanted their gifts to be acknowledged and honored. And it's in that context that Paul says to them, love one another and stop your trivializing. Let this mind be in you that was Christ Jesus who emptied Himself even to the death of the cross. What are you doing, Philippians? Wanting a little credit for this and wanting to be acknowledged for that and wanting to be thanked for that and honored for that. Abandon all your pretensions to glory. Encamp your soul at the foot of the cross. And you'll be done with all that trivia. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then you shall love one another for Christ's sake. Oh, so often we nurse bitterness against someone who treats us far less ill than we have treated the Lord of glory. 
And He gave His life for us rather than being bitter against us. Dear brother, dear sister, abandon your petty rights. Abandon your mundane complaints at the foot of the cross. How do we dare to trivialize at the foot of the cross? We are then like the merciless servant. Being forgiven millions and millions and millions of dollars. We go up to someone who owes us one dollar. And we destroy ourselves in the process. Do you have someone in your ministry now that's given you a difficult time? Thank God for that person. Because that person is used for your sanctification. And ever remember that no matter how much people come against you, it's a pinprick to how much you have gone against the Lord Jesus Christ. And if He delivered you and loves you purely, why can't you love your neighbor? as yourself. Pray for your enemies. Do good to them that despitefully use you. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus our Lord. And secondly, Christ being forsaken by God doesn't only reveal His stupendous love, but also the stupendous love of the Father. You say, the Father? I see nothing but wrath from the Father here. Well, look again. Remember John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. True, He had to turn away His face from Jesus because He found sin on Him. But it's your sin, not His sin. But that's all according to the plan, remember. That's all according to the Father's love. In the Gospel, the Father loves sinners lavishly, overwhelmingly. His love is ever-flowing, overflowing to His own. He gives everything He has. He holds nothing back. When I was in Mexico doing some mission work, I walked into a home. Really, it was a cardboard shack. And these people said to me, Our home is your home. And you could take anything you want. We mean it. We give it all to you. If you want it all, take it all. And I looked around that poor home and thought, isn't it amazing? We're all rich people compared to those people. And we're so reluctant to give. And these poor people are willing to give everything. But think of the Father in heaven. He looked around. And he looked for the very best he had, his only begotten son. And he gave him for the worst he could find. You and me, hell-worthy sinners. The best for the worst. That's the Gospel. That's the supreme commitment of his heart. That's the love, the lavish love of the Father. And Christ's forsakenness by his own Father makes plain that the Father held nothing in reserve. But the Father was extravagant in His love to sinners. Dear believer, the fourth word from the cross preaches God's unchangeable love for you. You're caught up in a love that has broken down all the prejudices of your evil mind and heart. That love has brought you into its own domain. That love causes you to swim in its infinity and one day to glory in its reality forever and forever. 
The love of the Father flows from His very heart, from His very being. You can't stop that love. You can't quench that love. The floods can have drowned that love. No one has ever loved this way. If you're a father, you know what I mean when you say, when I say, when your child is sick, when your child is hurting, you are hurting more than your child. The father's love is just amazing. Amazing grace. God is willing to turn a deaf ear to his son's agony to listen to your needs as a poor sinner. If you didn't know better, you'd almost be tempted to say that this seems like foolish love. When we learn how sinful we are, we're prone to cry out with Peter, Depart from me, O Lord, from a sinful man. How foolish thou art to love such a creature as I am, so changeable, so wicked, so selfish. The wisdom of men is foolishness with God, Paul says. But the foolishness of God, Paul uses this word, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1.25 You see, the foolishness of God's amazing love is incomprehensible to us. Had others treated us the way we treat God, we would offer them no hope, no mercy, no forgiveness. We'd say, I refuse to cast my pearls before such swine. But God puts the pearl of great price before sinners like us who are swine-like in our nature. Like Asaph, or was it Heman who said, I was as a beast before thee. God in His infinite wisdom decides to bring glory to Himself and the Son of His love by making His Son the mediator and Savior of a multitude no man can number. Oh, the love of the Father in the giving of His Son. And then in this fourth word from the cross, we see not only the love of the Son and the love of the Father, but also the stupendous love of the Holy Spirit of God. After Christ drank the cup of His Father's wrath, Mark tells us, chapter 15, 37 to 39, that three veils were rent. The Father tore the veil in the temple. Verse 38. The Son tore the veil of His own flesh. And died, verse 37, and the Holy Spirit tore the veil of the human heart of the centurion, verse 39, so that he cried out in the midst of a Christ-despising crowd, truly, this man was the Son of God. The Holy Spirit used Christ's last words, the loud cry of, my God, my God, and then the I thirst, and then the it is finished, and then the Father into thy hands I commend my spirit. In rapid succession now, as the six hours have waned away, he used those last words in the loud cry of victory and death, and the sign over Jesus' head, the King of the Jews, to persuade the centurion, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That is stupendous love. And it's stupendous love for that Holy Spirit to keep taking the things of Christ despite our continuing to sin against gospel love. To sin on the other side of the cross, having been saved. To sin against such love. That that Holy Spirit comes again and again and again and again. Teaching us, loving us. Like a father, his child, teaching us the same lessons over and over and over again. Training, molding, chipping away, preparing us for glory. 
That's not an easy work. The Spirit has to do. It's bigger than the creation of the world. But He does the job out of love, stupendous love for the Son, for the Father, and for you. You've heard of 19th century preacher Horatius Bonar, who was very discouraged one day about the fruit, the lack of fruit on his labors for a period of time. He's walking along the street and uh, walks by a church that was uh, nearly completely constructed. They're building the steeple on the church. But there's a man down on the side of the road in kind of a ditch. And he's chipping away at something. And Horatius Bonar stops beside him and he looks down at the brother. He says, what are you, what are you doing? And the man says, you see that up there? And he points to the top of the steeple. Horatius Bonar says, yes. Well, the man says, I'm chipping away at this down here. Because I'm getting it ready for that up there. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing with you. You, pastor, in all your challenges and all your disappointments and all your struggles, He's chipping away at you like a faithful, fatherly spirit to prepare you to be with the eternal Father, the eternal Son, the eternal Spirit in heavenly mansions above. What a glory. What a love. What persistent love of the Holy Spirit. Some children take more work than others. You know that. Some are high maintenance. A lot of work. Some of us take a lot of work too. But the Holy Spirit perseveres. He loves. He loved the centurion. He opened his heart. He showed him wonderful things. He showed you wonderful things as well. That's why you felt compelled to go into ministry. Because of the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit. Don't let that love in your heart for Him wax cold because of your troubles, your trials, your disappointments, your challenges, your tensions. But let all those things drive you the more to His love. He's a lovely God. And you know He's fatherly in every one of His persons. I've been meditating a lot on that in the last few years. Ever since I did my little book on the Puritan view of adoption, I've been just consumed with this theme of the fatherhood of God. It's never appeared so precious to me in all my life. Lately, I've seen how fatherly God is in all three persons of His Trinity. You know, Jesus was prophesied as the everlasting Father. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace. He's so fatherly at the right hand of the Father, sending us servants of God to minister and feed us. He's fatherly in administering the means of grace through His fatherly Spirit. It's not just the Father who's fatherly. The Son is fatherly. And the Spirit is so fatherly. Patiently. Firmly. Generously. Yet compellingly. Teaching us the same lessons again and again. And again, but all through the cry of dereliction, all through the cry of malediction, all through the suffering Savior. And that's why Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified.
And so take your heart, take your wounded heart, take your broken heart. Flee to the once forsaken but never forsaking Savior. And cast yourself upon Him afresh. And you'll experience revitalization of your ministry. And trust Him when He says, Hebrews 13, verse 5, verse 5 in the original Greek, literally, He will never, 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 never forsake you. I suppose best translated, He will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. Look at the cross. Hear the cry. And gaze upon your Father's face, your Father's beautiful face, and say, My Father, my God, my Savior, my Spirit. Through the cry of Christ, we have everything we need for this life and for a better. You have an advocate now in heaven. His name is Jesus. He represents you, pleads your case, intercedes for you every moment. And you have an advocate in your own heart, the Spirit of Christ, who pleads your case. You can't go wrong with a double divine advocate. He will keep you. Your feet shall not slip. Stay the course. Keep your hand on the plow. Don't look back. For he that looketh back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Do the work of the Lord. Do the work of an evangelist. You see, he says to you, my child, I cannot leave you. I cannot forsake you. I've invested too much to win you over. I've sent my son to the cross for you. I cannot turn back now. You're too precious to me. The Lamb of God has made you mine forever. And experiencing this, we can then turn to him and say, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. So next time, let me conclude with this. Next time you're tempted to sin, stop and consider the fourth word from the cross. And then say, looking upon your Father's face, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? Encamp at Calvary. Let the cry of dereliction sink down deep into your heart. And then go out and live wickedly if you dare. Amen. Gracious God, we ask Thy blessing upon the stammering of these few words. And we do pray, O God, that we might realize their enormity, the enormity of the blood, the enormity of Jesus' forsakenness, and the enormity of our sin. And we thank Thee so much, Lord Jesus, that Thy righteousness exceeds our sinfulness. Thy grace is mightier than our iniquity. Oh, help us to live in the light of the Gospel. Help us to be ravished with Thy ravishing love. Help us to serve Thee all the days of our life. Help us to cry out 
we thank God that we are, have not been, are not, will not be forsaken because our Savior was forsaken. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.